Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to join me in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word and you have a smartphone, then I would encourage you to download the ESV, uh, ESV app. That's the version of the Bible we'll be reading this morning, uh, the English Standard Version, or if not, in the chairs in front of you, there's um, Bibles in the chairs in front of you, and you're more than welcome to utilize those. And if you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, and you have a desire to, you can take one of those as a gift from us. It would be our desire that you would have one to be able to study and know the Word of God And so that would be our intent. So John chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Beginning verse 16, one of the most, if not the most familiar verses in Scripture. John 3, 16, and we're going to end in verse 21. If you have the notes that are in the weekly bulletin, I encourage you to take those out. And if you have something to write with, you'll be able to fill in the blanks. The notes will be on the screen behind me. Um, And uh, if you uh, don't want to take notes, you just want to pay attention. Uh, But later on, you come to the realization, I really wish I had taken notes. Uh, They are provided on our website as well as the audio version of the sermon as well. So I encourage you that uh, you're not for not. We have some resources available to you if you so desire to to, uh, come across this later. So John chapter 3, let me read the text for us, and then I'll give a little bit of background. And as you can tell, if you've taken the notes out, uh, this is week 3 of uh, the same notes that you've had. That's why the notes are already filled in for certain portions of this scripture or the certain portions of the section of the notes it's because I've, I've attempted to try to finish this uh, for two weeks now, and I do believe we're going to land the plane this morning. So we should be able to have those notes completed this morning, the Lord willing. So John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, the word of the Lord says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Father, we ask you would help us this morning. I pray you would help me to be able to speak with clarity. I pray you'd help me to be able to speak with confidence and courage and compassion. I pray that you would give each of us, myself included, ears to hear and hearts to receive this message. Lord, we pray that we would not be forgetful hearers, but we would be doers of your word. We pray that your spirit would take your word and implant it into our souls. And that, Lord, that we would see a fruit, a harvest that would be able to come in the days ahead, the days ahead as a result of the truth that's being discovered. I pray, Lord, that we would worship you this morning oh, under your word. And, that, Lord, we would um, find even greater joy that, Lord, our responses would be in light of a really great big God. We'd see how truly uh, amazing you are. How 
Lord, you're, how inscrutable, how unsearchable are your ways. And that, Lord, if you would be for us, then who could be against us? Who could bring a charge against your elect, your children? And that what could separate us from this love, the love of God? And so, Lord, I pray that in light of how great you are, our concerns, our circumstances, the issues of our life, difficulties with people, Lord, would seem small in comparison. And Lord, as we look at entrance into your kingdom, salvation, I pray that you would help us to think carefully about weighty topics and that, Lord, that we would, as a result of processing this, it would make us understand just how truly amazing you are and how uh, little we are in your sight. But yet, Lord, still loved and sought after simply, Lord, by the way you demonstrated your love toward us while we were yet sinners, you died for us and that you sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And so help us this morning to come away with these things that, Lord, that we may grow in our knowledge of you and then, Lord, be agents of change in the lives of other people, that, Lord, we would take this message and share with people who either are unsettled in their salvation or, Lord, who don't know you at all, and that, Lord, that we would be uh, men and women who desire to be salt and light. They may see our good deeds and glorify you who is in heaven. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we start off two weeks ago in John chapter 3, verse 16, with an interesting uh, start. As you look at John three sixteen and Walk through there, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the, you'll see in your notes, that are already filled in, there's a requirement There's a requirement for a biblical response upon hearing the gospel. God requires this of us. It's not just that we can hear news and the gospel means good news. It's not just that we simply hear this good news and that's it. That we can either do something with it or not, and that ultimately... The, we're morally neutral in some kind of a sense, and that ultimately, if we don't, we choose not to choose for a season and die uh, at that particular time, that somehow we get a pass into heaven. This is not what the scripture says and teaches at all. All throughout the scripture, you will begin to see that salvation is conditional. It requires repentance and faith. It requires a biblical response. Here, it's described as a person who whoever believes in Him. And so ultimately, this is important as we begin to think about that. But then, uh, as we've been thinking the last couple of weeks, and the reality in this is that what is, as we're thinking through this, what does it really mean to believe? And the reason we ask that question, if you'll back up one page probably, or uh, to John chapter 2, verse 23, an interesting thing is seen in the context of the text. In John chapter 2, verse 23, it says, Now when he, he being Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his Name And so this seems like, well, then ultimately if they believed in his name, then they would not perish, but they should have eternal life. But then listen to what the Bible says about this. And many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. He was doing a variety of miracles and signs. But verse 24 says, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. The word entrust is simply the same word that was, was, was read in verse 23, that believe. So basically, they believed in his name when they saw his signs, but Jesus, on his part, did not believe in them. What does that mean? He did not entrust himself to them. Because why? He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him. So he didn't need anyone to bear testimony about the people who said they believed in him. Because why? For he himself knew what was in man. He knew they had some form of belief, a belief that 
wanted and desired him to do signs for them, but they did not have a saving faith because why? They did not look at him as the Messiah who was coming to die for their sins. And so you, there can be a belief that is insufficient for salvation. Now, none of that I'm speaking I mean, is trying to attempt at all, I mean, be clear, to communicate that a person earns or merits salvation. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot work enough to be able to, to merit or to earn salvation. Don't hear that when I say it's insufficient. It's simply saying their faith was in, in the wrong um, object, was in the wrong uh, uh, reference. Their faith needed to be in Jesus, and all they saw Jesus was was a, a, a prophet or a teacher who could do amazing signs. But he was not, in their eyes, the Messiah. And then we see this being illustrated in the very next verse, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. This is exactly what's ta- what he just preached in John chapter, or he's taught in John chapter 2, verse 23 and through 25. Nicodemus believes he's a teacher come from God. He just doesn't believe he is God. If you know anything about John, the gospel according to John, in John chapter 1, he says that Jesus is the Word, and he was with God and was God, and was with God in the beginning. Nothing that was made was created apart from him, and that he was both light and life to all men. And so this is the, in, the instructions here for us to be able to see that Jesus, it's not, it's not sufficient faith just to simply believe that Jesus is a good teacher. We must believe that he is the Messiah coming to die for the sin of of mankind and including our sin. And this was the fundamental problem for Nicodemus, right? And so ultimately he says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he had a certain belief in Jesus, but not sufficient saving faith. How do we know that? Verse three, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You're not, you think you're in it, but you won't see it. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Born again, in that previous verse, this means to be born from above. And Nicodemus doesn't quite understand, so is believing Jesus is talking about physical birth yet again. He's like, listen, I'm a grown man. I can't really quite climb into my mother's womb again to make this thing happen a second time. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So born of water and the Spirit is a synonym for being born from above, being born uh, from heaven, right? And being born again. So this is what he said before. And in verse 3, he says, you cannot see the kingdom. And now in verse 5, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom. Now, this would be shocking to Nicodemus, a teacher, a ruler of the Jews, because Why? He's at the epitome of religious activity. And Jesus is telling him, you're not in it, and you can't even see it unless this happens to you. How does Jesus continue to communicate? Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. So that which is born of physical earthly things is earthly. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. So there needs to be a a heavenly birth, right? There needs to be a, a, a birth from above. Now, this is interesting because this is what being born of the water and the Spirit translates, right? This is what it communicates. Now, I'll share a little bit about that briefly here in just a second. Jesus says, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, 
but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is using an, an analogy intentionally to undercut any religious activity that thinks that we can uh, earn favor with God in and of ourselves. That's why he chose that illustration. How many of us are responsible for our own birth? None of us, right? God did this work for us, right? Had the seed come together between a man and a woman, and a child is conceived in the womb, and as a result, the Bible says that God knits us in the womb together, grows us, forms us, and eventually then our birth happens upon his timing, not ours. So man is incapable of any attitude whatsoever, any desire, any work on our own to earn salvation. We're not responsible uh, in, in a sense in that way to be able to say, I can make myself get saved and I'm not responsible despite the fact I desperately desire my children to be saved that to mandate any of my children to be Christians. I can't do it. The very best I can do is to make them a, a religious follower in some general sense. A Pharisee, it would be the best I could accomplish in my own strength. Why? Because I can't control the wind. And Jesus used in that analogy as a second analogy. You can't control your own birth and you can't make the wind blow. Now, you can use the effects of the wind to generate energy and power, right? You can use windmills and planes and a variety of other things, but you cannot generate the wind. And he says the spirit blows wherever it it wills. And so it's basically saying you can't manufacture your own salvation. Now, this to a person who's and elevated up the chain of command in religious activity. An entire nation looks to him as to be one of the greatest, great teachers of that particular time, and he is bankrupt morally. Judaism is a, is a sham. Why? Because God himself is standing before Nicodemus, and he can't see it. And if he can't see that this is the kingdom starts with Christ, you're not going to enter it. And so you need to have your eyes opened so that you can actually see the Messiah. Now, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? You're telling me I can't do anything? There's nothing in my own power that can aid me in in coming to faith in Christ? Either I'm born or I'm not born? Either the Spirit blows or or it doesn't? Listen to Jesus' response. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet do not understand these things. You teach people the Old Testament. You teach people the Bible of that particular time. And you don't know this. What does that give us a clue? It's in the Old Testament somewhere, right? It's somewhere in the Old Testament. And that's exactly the truth. It's all over the Old Testament. It's not just somewhere. It's everywhere all over the Old Testament. But I want to read a particular passage to you. We'll come back. Remember what the Bible said? It used to send them for being born again. And the synonym that was being used for born again was that you must be born of water and of spirit, right? Remember, you see that in that previous passage, the section we just read? Listen to this out of Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, beginning in verse 24. Ezekiel 36, beginning in 24. This is speaking of the new birth here, and it's a, a, a reference in the Old Testament about the new birth. And it says, and God speaking, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. So they had been dispersed because of sin. God kicked them out of the nation that he had given to them as a result of their idolatry, right? And so then the northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians, and they were deported. Now the southern kingdom of Judah, Jerusalem, was attacked, and they were eventually deported by Babylon. And he says, I'm going to take you from all these nations, and I'm going to bring you back to Israel. I'm going to bring you back to Jerusalem, right? And he says in, in verse 24, and I will uh, bring you into your own land again. Now listen to this, and I will sprinkle what? Clean water on you. <laughs> 
There's the allusion to water that we talked about in John 3. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. So he says there's going to be a, a cleansing in a spiritual sense that you won't desire to, to follow in idolatry. You're going to want to worship me. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and put a new, here it is, spirit within you. There they are coupled one verse after the next. You see water and spirit. He says, I'm going to take this, um, new, I'll give you a new heart. And I'm going to put my spirit within you and I will remove your heart of stone and I'll, and, uh, from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so you're seeing here, all it's saying is the stone will be unresponsive. It would not respond to the things of God. Just like this podium isn't going to get saved one day because why? It's a stone. It is unresponsive. And God is speaking to us in a similar manner. He says, your heart before you're born again will not respond to me. But then I'm going to create a new heart in you. And as a result of the new heart in you, you will be able to respond to me in true saving faith. You will be able to believe. And so this is exactly what it's saying here. I will put a new... Uh, give you a new heart and your flesh. And in verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, what part does man have in any of that? If you read the personal pronoun I all throughout verse 26 or chapter 36, 24 through 27. Just listen to him now. Just I'm going to read through it quickly. But then if you if you don't. If you're like me and you don't mind writing your Bible, I would circle all the personal pronoun I. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new uh, give you a new heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Be careful to obey all my rules. If my math was correct, it was seven personal pronouns, I, where God says, I'm doing this work. And man is doing nothing. God does this work. At that particular time, man was in captivity, right? The Israelites were bound by the, the Babylonians, right? They were held captive to them. And God says, I'm going to do this work among you. And this is just one of the sects that will see this. But this is the picture that's being described in the New Testament of salvation. God does a work in us first. He must do the work. That's why we pray. Think about that for a moment. We pray because why? God must do a work first. God, open their eyes. Grant repentance. Lord, transform their heart. Transform them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Give, grant them ears to hear, a heart to receive. Turn their hearts, as in Acts chapter 16 with Lydia. Turn their hearts. Who's doing the work? We're asking God to do something that we cannot do. And this is exactly what we're seeing in our, our passage this morning, is that, we're, that, or that we studied just prior to this passage, that God must do this work. Now, I'm going to all this history because it's, we need to be able to see all this in context, right? And in verse 11, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness of what we have seen. So Jesus is saying, me and the guys who are with me, my disciples, are speaking of things that we know about, right? But you don't know those things. It says, but you do not receive our testimony. This is showing that ultimately Nicodemus didn't receive it. He's rejecting truth. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one descended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, here's what's interesting. Okay, and this is going to our notes. The requirement for biblical biblical response upon hearing the gospel. God demands a response. 
Now, the first question you should be able to ask, and the question you should be posing is, how can God demand a response if we're not going to respond if he doesn't change our heart first? That's not fair. And this is exactly what the point in the notes say. There's two fundamental doctrines of the faith. Divine sovereignty, God is sovereign over salvation. He's the one who causes the new birth. He's the one who changes my heart. He's the one who cleanses me that I don't like the idols that are in my life anymore. My eyes are open. I would never have wanted to seek God. The Bible says no one seeks after God. There's no one righteous. No, not one. We don't seek God. But then people say, but there's been times where I, I did seek God. If you're seeking God now, it's because he sought you first. That's the point. God is divinely sovereign over salvation. And at the same time, the Bible says man is humanly responsible. There's human responsibility. Divine sovereignty on one side, human responsibility on the other. And they're coupled together. Jesus just communicated. Nicodemus, you can't save yourself. The wind blows where it wills. You're born when I say you're born. But whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's a response and that response is seen through two fundamental doctrines of the faith, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. How are we to understand those two? Well, the reality is that we can't understand them completely because we're not God. There's things that we won't understand, but it doesn't mean that we just throw our hands up and we just say it's impossible to be able to understand. And so we, we operate with what has been show, shown to us. And so even though there's two fundamental doctrines of the faith, there's two biblical responses to the truth. And the two biblical responses are either you receive the truth or you reject the truth, right? And so receiving the truth is what we see in John 3.16. What we saw in John 3.15. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We will receive the truth. And this is where we talked a couple weeks ago or last week when we were describing the parable of the soils. And just briefly that Jesus is teaching a parable about uh, what it means to be a, a, a follower of his. And he says that there was some seed thrown off and one landed on the path and was immediately snatched away by birds right that was representative of, uh, the soils represent human hearts and the hearts represent people who were uh, open to the truth but they weren't necessarily atheists or rejecting the truth but ultimately they did not uh, embrace it and so like oh that's interesting and immediately before they even leave the parking lot it's been snatched away and then there's the stony ground and those are individuals who receive it with joy oh that's such great truth i love that it sounds so good and it spring it seems like it springs forth and it seems like it's every appearance they're a believer, every appearance is they're a Christian. But over time, persecution sets in. And it says that, or the, the illustration Jesus gives in the parable is that ultimately there's no root within itself. And when the drought of summer comes, the, 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 the plant withers and it dies, showing it was not a genuine believer. Ultimately, you begin to reject truth. Whereas the believer receives truth constantly, this individual, the first person reject the truth because it didn't appropriate it into his life. The second person began to appropriate some truth in life until it got difficult and it cost them something for following Jesus. They begin to receive persecution and trials and they fall away. The third soil is a thorny soil, thorny ground. It represents a human heart that once again receives truth in some general way. Once again, keep in mindset, John chapter 2, they believed in him, saw the signs that he did, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because why? He knew it was a superficial faith. He didn't come to, the Spirit of God did not dwell within them. Their lives weren't changed. Their eyes weren't open. Right? All the things we read in Ezekiel 36, their heart, the heart of stone wasn't taken out. The heart of flesh wasn't put in. They weren't cleansed from their idolatry. And so as a result of that, it says that over the course of time, thorns grow up and choke out the plant. What does that communicate? The Bible speaks of it in this way. It says, ultimately, the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of this life choke out the word. 
Now listen, none of those were believers. None of them. None of them were believers. And so we've got to be cautious. We've got to be careful when people say, I love Jesus, I believe in Jesus. Because Jesus had already said, I don't entrust myself to people who come from spurious faith, superficial faith. Genuine followers of Christ love the word and will remain in the word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. Same illustration that's given in Luke chapter 8 about the parable of the soils. Now, the soil that receives the word not only begins receiving the word, but then manifests that it will continue to receive the word despite the fact that there's desire for other things, despite the fact there's temptations for other things, despite the fact there's persecution, they want the word, they appropriate the word, they remain faithful in the word even when persecution comes, and they remain faithful even though there are temptations in their own, still their own sinful heart, there's temptations and desires that would want to pull them away from the word, the word of God does what it said it would do in Ezekiel 36. When God put his spirit within us, it says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and my commandments. I will so transform you from the inside out that you will want to obey my word and you will remain in my word. This is foundational. Because I look at the landscape of America, and I've been a pastor long enough to be able to understand and be able to see over 15 years that this is true. There's a many a person that can sit in my office and sit in a service and for a season whether it be three months or six months or a year or two years, and it appears like they're walking in holiness. But give it time, and we will see if they're genuine followers of Christ. And so, Scripture communicates to us that those who are the good soil receive the word, bear fruit with patience and endurance, and they bear fruit. They reproduce 30, 60, and 100-fold. Massive growth. Massive. Why? Because they never reject the truth. And in, it, like, in the scope of their life, I'm not saying that they do it perfectly. There will be times where we disobey God, sure. But the, 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 the projection of their life is one that continues to obey God throughout the duration of their life. Why? Because it proves that they, what they've done has been wrought in God, that God has transformed their life. And so the biblical response is, how do we... How do we respond to this? That if a person has been born again, they've been born from above, they will receive truth and will continue to receive truth. But let us not be deceived in thinking that there is a category for carnal Christianity where a person can confess faith in Christ when they were young or at some point in their life and go long stretches of time apart from any obedience and any desire for the word, God's kingdom, God's people, and for a desire to share his gospel with the lost. It is not true. Why? Because the Bible says you will bear fruit. And so we begin to see there's two fundamental responses to the gospel, right? To receive the truth or to reject the truth. And this is important because why? as we see these together, we tie these, these aspects together, Jesus is now communicating. Well, if the new birth is something that God does, is there any means... To bring encouragement to help people to know what the truth is. Yes, we share the gospel with them. Romans 9 talks much about sovereign, divine sovereignty and salvation in Romans 9. You should just read it. And then immediately on the heels of Romans 9, Paul says in Romans 10 that people act in ignorance. And they desire to have their own self-righteousness because they're ignorant of the truth. And so then he says they should, just should learn the truth. And so what does Paul say? We need to tell them the truth. And how will they believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear if there's not a preacher? And how will there be a preacher if someone's not sent? And so the reality in this is we have to be able to understand that God is so much bigger 
than us. And that's where then Romans 9, you see divine sovereignty. Romans 10, you see human responsibility. And Romans 11, I love this particular passage, but in Romans 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Oh, how amazing is our God. We can't figure him out. He's so wise. He's so amazing. He's, 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 he's so above us. The riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. What's, what's, that, what's that communicate to us? Our God is so big. Why is that important? Because if you have a small view of God, you'll have a big view of people and a big, big view of problems. If you have a big view of God, you'll have a small view of people. Not that you look at them with disdain, but meaning you won't look at them in fear. That's what Romans 8 said. God before us, who could be against us? How do people really live with that kind of passion? It's because they have a really large view of God. And how they have a really large view of God? Areas of understanding, divine sovereignty and human responsibility coupled right together. These mysteries of the kingdom. This shows us that our ways, his ways are not our ways. In verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We don't need to tell God anything. That's why Jesus didn't need, to know what, didn't need somebody to testify about man. He knew what was in man. He could look at their heart and perceive their thoughts at that particular very moment. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? There is not a man on this planet who has made God his debtor, despite how much faithfulness and ministry he's had. And so we ought to be careful that when things don't go the way we want them to, that we never shake our fists at God and say, God, how dare you? I can't believe you would take my son. I can't believe you take my daughter. I can't believe you take my mother or my father. I can't believe you do this to me. Does he owe you something? Is he your debtor? And if so, tell me how he's your debtor. Or has he given a gift to him? Someone had given a gift to God that he might be repaid. If we don't get hell, which we deserve, it is grace. And anything above that is gravy. And so those are the requirement for a biblical, a believing, a, a biblical response to the gospel. Now let's move on to number two. Jesus' atonement for sins is the basis for, believing, for a believing response to the gospel. Jesus' atonement for sins is the basis for a believing response to the gospel. This is what chapter Three is communicated to us. And literally, it begins back in verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have life and may have eternal life. And then he continues again, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What it's communicating is, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21, the children of Israel were, had rejected God due to idolatry. And God sent serpents. And when he sent serpents into the into the their camp, he sent serpents to bite them that were poisonous serpents, poisonous snakes, and when they were bitten, they would die. This was God's curse upon them for their rejecting him as Lord over their life. So then the people begin to be bitten by all these serpents, all these snakes, and they begin to, you begin to see people just dying one after the other, after the other, after the other, and all of a sudden people begin to cry out and say, oh God, please forgive us. We know the sins that we've done. And so then Moses begins to pray on behalf of the people, begins to intercede on behalf of the people, and, and, and God says, create an image, a pole that has a serpent wrapped around it. And they must come and look at the curse. And when they come and look at the curse, if they come to look with believing faith, like I told them, they come. If you come to look, you'll live. Numbers 21. And so that was the means of provision. That was a means of demonstrating faith. Who brought healing? God did, not the pole. How did they demonstrate they believed in God? 
by going to look at the pole as God had prescribed. They demonstrated faith according to the word of God. Was it some man-centered man attempt of earning or meriting their own salvation? God's the one who said, take the pole, put the serpent around it, and when they come look at the curse, they'll know, they'll be able to identify it was their own sin that got them bitten by a snake because they were cursed for their own sinfulness, and they'll come and look at the curse itself, and upon looking at the curse, they'll live. Now, what did Jesus mean? As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What's he saying? Well, first of all, just by, by word of, of instruction, next time you look at an ambulance and you see the, the pole with the serpent on it, know where it came from, Numbers 21. It's exactly where it came from. You can look there, and when you look, that's where you can find life, right? Not spiritually, but physically. So how does this relate to what Jesus is saying in the New Testament? Well, the, the Old Testament said, cursed is everyone who hangs upon the tree. Man has been in the curse, is, is held under slavery, under the curse of sin. We were born in sin. We choose to sin. We walk in sin. We have dead hearts, stony hearts that cannot respond to the things of God. And if God, God doesn't do something to us, we won't live, right? But the Bible says this. Ultimately, though, Jesus came to die for sinners. He became a curse for us. He died on the tree, which is what the Old Testament says. Curses everyone hung on a tree. And so we must come and look at this curse. It doesn't make any sense. That's why it's by faith in Christ. The work was done on, on our behalf. Someone else did the work. And as a result by that, by simply placing faith and trust in the word of God and what he said, by trusting in Christ and his finished work on the cross, we too can be saved. And this is exactly what it talks about. Jesus' atonement, Jesus' payment for sins is the basis for a believing response to the gospel. So despite the fact man can't do anything to save themselves, Jesus didn't leave Nicodemus helpless. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do. No power of your own. No, no amount of, of work on your own part. And it must have left Nicodemus just baffled. Then what's the next thing Jesus says? But I'm here to die on your, on your behalf. And if you'll trust in me, if you look to me, just like the, the serpent in the wilderness, you look to me, you live. Just like they look to the serpent on the pole, you live. By faith in the work that's been done for you. They had to look at the curse. We must look at the curse that Jesus was cursed for us. And so this is the basis. And so genuine forgiveness and salvation through faith by grace is grounded or established upon the atoning work of Christ. Salvation is not based upon sincerity alone. Many people will say that. Literally, I believe God is kind of going to give everybody a pass as long as you're sincere. Yeah? So jihadists that blow up places, as long as they're sincere in what they did, they're going to pass. An individual can be genuine and sincere, but still trusting in a false gospel. Just this week, Bernie Sanders went nuts on a, a believing Christian who was uh, nominated by President Trump because of his writing an article defending his alma mater, Wheaton College, which is a Christian school for Christians, and re- re- relating to the uh, response there of how they would be able to defend the gospel, right? And it's, it, the exclusivity of Christ. No one comes to God except through Jesus Christ. And so he writes a letter on behalf of his alma mater and the doctrine of uh, the statement of faith that's attached to uh, their um, their constitution based upon their, their um, institution's um, founding documents. And so as a result of that, he gets in trouble by Bernie Sanders and his... his yelled at in the, the uh, committee hearings there to be able to hear whether or not he should be passed on. And the reality is, is that this is the type of thing. You mean to tell me that Jewish people are going to go to hell when they die if they don't believe in, in Christ? You mean to tell me that Muslims across this world 
are going to go to hell when they die if they don't believe in Christ. Mormons, despite the fact they say they believe in the right Christ, is not really following the Christ of the Bible, and so they're not going to go to heaven when they die. Jehovah's Witnesses aren't going to go to heaven when they die. You mean to tell me you're so narrow-minded you think only your way is right? No. I believe God's way is right. And if I'm in his way, then yes, I believe only those who are in Christ will go to heaven. Right? This is the intent. As long as you're sincere. Right? As long as you pray. Congress prays. We see what help that provides us, right, in many ways. But an individual can be genuine and sincere, but still trusting in a false gospel. Genuine salvation is not simply an intellectual exercise or simply having a faith in an abstract concept, like faith in faith. I just believe in believing. I just believe you should believe. I have faith in a denomination. We're Southern Baptist. We're Roman Catholic. We're Methodist. We're Lutheran. We can fill in the blank with whatever denomination. I trust in Christ. Am I affiliated? Are we affiliated with the denomination? Of course. But my saving faith does not come. It's not the basis. It's not based upon a denomination. It's based upon a Lord and Savior who died for my sins and the sins of the elect. It's not faith in forgiveness. I believe God is just going to forgive. I believe He is forgiving. Yes, He is. But not on the basis of nothing. He forgives on the basis of something. Do you know what that something is that He's willing to forgive? I believe, I have faith in love. At the end of the day, God knows us, knows how we're, we're wired, and ultimately He's going to listen to the kingdom. I'm sorry to hear that. That's not at all the truth. He requires a response. What we've been talking about, right? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. We must respond to the truth of the gospel. And so a biblical response to the gospel is trusting and believing in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus is starting his ministry. It says, now after John, John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There it is. You must repent and believe in the gospel. It's the same thing you see in Romans chapter 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love coupling those two verses together. Because what does it tell you? When a person genuinely repents of their sin, that they don't view the world foundationally as that ultimately the world revolves around them and everyone is around them and in their world to, to accommodate their kingdom. No, that's how we were before we were saved. But the moment we come to faith in Christ, we realize we've made a, a mess of our lives. We've sinned against the holy God. And his divine wrath is against us. And so as a result of that, we must turn from thinking that we're the center of the universe and God's created everything, created everything for us to bow down to, to, bow down to us, that we must bow down to him. And so to repent is what, exactly what it means to confess Jesus as Lord. He's the one who's ruling over everything. Now, whether or not you confess him as Lord or not doesn't mean that that means, makes him Lord. He's Lord whether or not you confess or not. That's why at the end, the Bible says that every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. We bow to him in his divine lordship. And it's what it means to repent and then to believe. That's what Jesus says. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's exactly what he, Romans 10 says. G, believe, confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's repentance. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. What are you believing in? 
Not simply that Jesus was a good teacher, like those in John chapter 2, but believing that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't, died the death that we deserved, and that he was lifted up, that anyone who looks to him looks and lives. And so a biblical response to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for your, sin, your sins is seen in self-denying trust and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Matthew 16 says. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, right? That's uh, self-denying trust, right? So we're not denying in ourselves, self, self-denial. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So genuine fellowship is that. That's why it makes sense if you go back to the, the parable of the four soils. At some point, you reject submitting, submitting to Christ. Whether it's through persecution or for desire of riches and the cares and deceitfulness of this world, that we can be lulled to sleep by religious activity that we think we're obeying God. Here's the concern. We can be doing lots and lots and lots of activities at our gatherings, lots and lots of activities with other people, and we think we're better than those outside. You would then be no better than Nicodemus in the way he viewed it. But what did Jesus say? No, that's not at all the case. You won't see the kingdom or enter the kingdom. I don't care how much how busy you were. And so here's the concern as a pastor. When I look at the congregation, when, I, when, I, when I'm sharing with individuals that come to my house or I share with others that I interact with, there's such a deception. Because why? We can be so busy with religious activities at good gatherings, at good churches, and yet we never do what God's asked us to do. We don't obey the words that he's actually put in the Bible. This is why there's such a concern for Pastor Tim and I to preach. It's why we would give you the 38 one other commands. It's why we would encourage us to do, we'd be able to do this together as a body. Why? The Bible says if, if you don't love the body, you don't really love God. But if we don't actually interact with the body, and we don't love one another and confront one another and hospitable one another and greet one another and be kind to one another and forgive one another and do all the things that the Bible says we're supposed to be doing, how do we know that we're genuine followers of Christ? You say, well, that's because I'm always in a small group. I'm a small group leader. Or I lead the band, or I sing, I play, I sing, or I, I, I play the drums. And I'm spending lots of time preparing for this so that we can lead people in worship. And I'm saying, but genuine worship is what? Genuine worship is that we would renew our mind and prove what the will of God is. And how do we know what the will of God is? It's what His Word tells us. And what does the Word tell us? We ought to be making disciples. Now that's, that's huge. Because how many of us could be busy for decades in church life and church ministry and begin to go, how many disciples have I made? How many disciples have I made? Could we just be distracted with religious activity at good churches that preach a good gospel and not ourselves be actually following the Savior? We've not denied ourselves. Why? Because we love singing in the band. We love playing the drums. We love teaching Sunday school. We just don't obey what the Bible tells us. There's a danger. And listen, as I've been preaching this, that's why it's taken me three weeks to preach this. There are ways in my life, not in totality, I do genuinely believe I'm a follower of Christ and I'm not just being hard on myself. But there are ways where I have the temptation to be just like Nicodemus. Look at all that I'm doing. And it doesn't matter if I'm not obeying what the scripture says. And so Jesus would say, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. Why? Because that's the, the indicator that I've been born from above. Number three, unbelief is the indictment against those who reject the gospel. Unbelief is the indictment 
against those who reject the gospel. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the, of the only Son of God. Now, here's the issue. Let's put it in the context of the first century. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come to judge, but the Messiah would come to judge the heathen and the Gentiles, not their nation. This is why we continue to study through John. They can be like, we're of Abraham. What are you talking about? And he'd be like, no, you're not of Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. Why? Because they thought, man, we're Gentiles. We're good. I'm not out there living like they live. It's like, listen, moral separation and the things that we do doesn't mean that we're born again. Once again, proof in, proof in text would be Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you're not going to see the kingdom or enter the kingdom. And this is exactly what the prophet Amos warned against, against this type of foolish thinking, this foolish understanding. Listen to Amos chapter eight, uh, 5, verse 18 through 20. Amos 5, 8 through 20. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. This is the day of judgment. Woe to you who desire that. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You want judgment to come, and what you don't know is that judgment's going to judge you. So the statement here is that the indictment is their unbelief. But it's interesting how it words it. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why doesn't Jesus then judge the world, right? So... Uh, uh, in this particular text, it's going to walk through and it continues on. And this is a judgment. Light's come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. All right, and so as you're thinking through this process and, you're, and walking through this, the question is, why is the world judged already? So Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. But he came that they might be saved. And the reality in this is that, well, what's taking place here? How are we thinking through this, right? So when you begin to look at Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world in order that the world might be saved through him, right? But whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. And so if he's not coming to condemn the world, then what's going on? Well, the world is already condemned. You and I were born into sin. We stand condemned. We're not, and that's what I told you earlier, we're not morally neutral. It's just like, I just take your time, take as so much time as you want to repent and believe. Now, I'm not trying to manipulate somebody, but I do want them to know that you're not guaranteed tomorrow. When were the people condemned? They were condemned at birth. The Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature... Children of of wrath like the rest of mankind. Imagine that. When the child comes out of the womb, they are born a child of wrath. They're not morally neutral. That's why the Bible would communicate in the Shema that we should be, when we rise up and we would lie down, when we walk about, that we should be teaching these things to our children. We should be teaching them the Bible. Why? Because we don't know when that God might take that word and regenerate a soul in our children and are called out of darkness into light. And so unbelief is the indictment against those who reject the gospel. Number four, the judgment upon the condemned and their unbelieving response to the gospel. The judgment. So they're already condemned, right? Jesus didn't come to condemn them. They were already condemned. 
And so the judgment upon the condemned and their unbelieving response to the gospel. And this is the judgment, verse 19 and 20 says. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to light, lest his works should be exposed. And this is interesting here, because ultimately the judgment has come upon the world. Because why? Men would not come to the light. Now, what's the light? What are we talking about light here? Light has come into the world. What light? They didn't want the light, but they wanted darkness so that their deeds that were done in darkness wouldn't be exposed. What's this light and darkness parallel? Let's, we're going back to how John the apostle started the letter, started the gospel. John chapter 1, 1 through 11, listen to this. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Him telling the people about the light. You should trust in the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And here he was talking to Nicodemus at night. Lighting him up. Showing the light. Telling him, just as the wilderness, the serpent was raised in the wilderness, I'm going to be lifted up. You believe in me, the Son of Man. You're going, to, you're going to come to a saving faith, a saving knowledge of me. But you must bear witness to the light, and you must come, and you must repent, and you must follow the light. John the Baptist was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, speaking of uh, uh, humanity in a sense and his own people did not receive him so he came to the jewish people primarily that should have been looking for a messiah and the jewish people rejected him and here you see it nicodemus rejecting him you don't believe the things that jesus told him you don't believe the things that we tell you we tell you earthly things you don't believe how am i going to believe i tell you heavenly things you reject the truth John 8, 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have life. But that's exactly what happened. The light came into the world. Jesus is standing before men, and people want the gifts, but not the giver. People want to be saved, but not the Savior. Why? It's because their hearts are dead. They're selfish. They're self-centered. So a dead or unresponsive heart will not respond to the words and works of Christ. They will not love the truth or the light because they either feel condemned by the truth, they feel convicted, they won't measure up to the truth, or simply they believe it's foolishness. There's your options. Those who do deeds done in darkness, either they feel condemned by the truth, and they should. Why? Because we're condemned already. Or they feel convicted that they do not measure up to it, and so they try to rationalize or justify themselves, or they lie. Picture the rich young ruler. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same thing he's talking about with Nicodemus. You can't do anything. But then a law was given to tell people, to show people they couldn't save themselves. And so Jesus says, well, first of all, you're talking about good, so let me just define your, your understanding of good. There's no one good but God alone, right? There's no one good but 
not alone. So what is he saying? I'm God. You're right in your estimation of me. I am good. Not just I'm a good communicator. No, I'm a good, perfect teacher because I'm God. I'm the one who wrote the word. He says, but what the commandments? You know the commandments. What do they say? You know, well, you should not commit adultery. You should not do this and do this. And he's like, well, did you keep those? Oh, yeah, from my youth I've kept them. And what did Jesus say to him then? Okay. Now, he didn't say okay because he believed it. He said, okay, all right. You're saying you're keeping the commandments, but there's two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus was tested by the lawyer, Jesus, the lawyer came up to him and said, what should we do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments? What do the commandments say? And he quotes those two. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus tells him, you're right. Go do it. Go do it. You want to inherit, you want to do something to inherit eternal life? Perfectly love God every moment of your life with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself without ever being self-centered. You do that perfectly your whole life, you'll get into heaven. And what was Jesus doing? He was slaying them. He was showing them that you can't be saved in your own strength. And so this is the heart of what he does with the rich ruler. He tells the rich ruler, you must go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What would that be doing? Loving your neighbor as yourself. So everything you have, give it to the poor and come and follow me. What would that be? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The essence of the first two commandments. He wasn't, he was trying to see if this guy really didn't want to obey the commandments or understand the commandments. And what he was saying, he was putting a standard that was too high for this guy to follow, which is the purpose of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh, no man will be justified. No one can keep it. And it should have just humbled us to go, we need a Savior. It's not just God's going to judge the heathens, those people. He's going to judge me. And I must be saved. And so ultimately the judgment is going to come upon me. And so I, I, I don't need to just feel convicted by it and then try to rationalize it. That's where the, ultimately the lawyer went, right? Well, then who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells him the good Samaritan to demonstrate to him that no man will be saved by their own works. It's not primarily a story about how to be kind to people. It's a great compliment to be called a good Samaritan, but it's not primarily a sermon that teaches us about good works, how to love people. There's a, that's true. We shouldn't be kind to our neighbor. We should love our neighbor. But if you're going to teach people, those passages are a myriad of other passages you should take people. The primary point of that parable is to teach people that they cannot be saved in and of their own merit. That's the point. And so either they feel condemned by the truth, they feel convicted by it, and they don't measure up, and they just rationalize it, or simply they believe it's foolishness. This is what 1 Corinthians 1.18 says. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To an atheist, it's just folly. To a Gentile who doesn't embrace anything, of, of any aspects of the Bible, it's, it's just foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.21-24. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Right? So what Paul's saying, it's obvious. To the lost world, my type of preaching is foolishness to them. For Jews demand signs. That's exactly what we've, we've seen, right? And we will continue to see as we study through John. 
For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For those who are called, those who will be saved, those who are the elect, those who will repent of their sin and believe. Now, here's the question. Can, despite the fact that people reject the gospel and the gospel is being shared, can we go anywhere on this planet and preach the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what great hope. If God's the one who's responsible for us salvation, it should embolden us and empower us that we can go anywhere on this planet and somebody's being called out of darkness. Because why? Salvation is not up to me. It's not up to the way I present it. I need to get the fundamental aspects of it. I need to preach it clearly and biblically. But I don't have to preach in a manner that's so persuasive that I can talk somebody into it. Because why? It's not of me. It's the result of the Spirit of God in a new birth. And so, last point as far as it relates to biblical responses to the gospel is the enjoyment of the redeemed and their hopeful response to the gospel. The enjoyment of the redeemed and their hopeful response to the gospel. But whoever does what is true, verse 21, whoever does... What is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When, when the person is genuinely born again, right? We want God to communicate to us through his word. We want to grow. We want to learn. We want to be around other believers. We want to talk about the things of God. If you're a Christian and you're, whether it be friends or family or neighbors or coworkers or a myriad of people you interact with, when you're around people who just want it to be superficial on purpose, because they're afraid if you generate any deeper types of conversation, it's going to lead to, the, to deeds that are done in darkness being exposed, you have no real fellowship with them. You, it's just superficial right does it go any deeper and this is the reality why the body of christ should be so distinct and so different why relationships should be so foundational and grow so much we had a couple plug-in that came by our house this they were it's a wedding and they'll be listening to this podcast so i know they're gonna be listening they don't our members here but they're uh follow us and they plugged into our house last or they came by our house this and uh, popped in on us and uh, around nine o'clock last night and um, stayed for hours talking to one another. And the reality in that, the reason I bring that story up is just to say that despite the fact they're not members of this body, they're Christians and they're followers of Christ. And there's such commonality with them, such sincerity, such genuine fellowship with them that they can just pop in unannounced. And uh, I mean, they texted, but they were in the area for a wedding and and, and, and hey, can we come over? And say, yeah, come on over and and you know and stayed. It didn't feel. I mean, it was three hours, and it felt like it was just a minute, maybe an hour. They're like, man, it's we we needed to go. It's really late. We're sorry. But no, no, no. We enjoyed it. When I share that illustration with you, it's because there is enjoyment of the redeemed and their hopeful response to the gospel. It's enjoyment with it, talking about the things of God, and yet there can be uh, other relationships you have where there should be a an expectation that there should be even greater unity and greater uh, 
a familiarity than that, and yet there's, it's hard to talk about things. It's hard to come up with things. Why? Because the very foundational thing that I love the most, they don't love. They don't love it. Not it. They don't love him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, the Scripture says here, there's great enjoyment for those who are in Christ. Because of why? Whatever we do, our interaction with people, things that we say, the, the, uh, the way we communicate, we know we've been transformed by the gospel. We know God has borne us from above. Why? So it can be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God, that it was him and not us. And so a person who's truly been born again, born from above, will bear fruits. What does that mean? We'll have works that we have seen have been carried out in God. God is the one who did this work for us. And this is what Ephesians 2 says. It's Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's a picture of the new birth. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages we might, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of work, so that, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When I look at my life, when you look at your life, and you're, you're obeying the Lord. None of us put our hands underneath our pockets and strut around like we're something. Why? We realize it's God who did this work in us. I wouldn't have chosen God if he didn't first choose me. I wouldn't love him if he didn't love me. I wouldn't be kind to people. Why? If I didn't have the spirit of God indwelling me, I know how selfish I am. Now, I can be kind to people and a kindness that leads to superficiality. I can tell you what you want to hear. There's a greater kindness There's a genuine love. There's a kindness that's a fruit of the Spirit that manifests itself that I'm going to tell you even difficult things because I love you. Faithful. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. We need friends that are willing to tell us the truth. Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is the message from John the Baptist to the Pharisees, right, and to those who were coming to see him. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, right? See if your works are being wrought in God. John 15, 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Once again, hearkening back to the, the, the parable of the soils, the fourth soil, right? The other ones did not bear any fruit, not, much, not, not, uh, not just much. They didn't bear any fruit. But here, the Bible says, you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what does that fruit look like? Galatians 5 tells us one of the aspects. This is not comprehensive, but one of the aspects of what that fruit looks like. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So the question is, are we loving people? People look at your life, do they characterize you by saying, man, you're, you're a loving person. Here's one. Are we a people of joy? People look at you, they are you joyful? Are people attracted 
to you because of the Spirit of God in you that there's joy in your life? You're a joyful person. Not just you put on a facade that's fake. There's genuine joy. Why? I'm just passing through, man. There's difficulty in this life for sure, but I'm, I'm a joyful person, right? I'm not a complainer. Complaining about things, right? There's a whole generation who has remained in the wilderness for why? Because they murmured and complained. We shouldn't make light of complaining and murmuring about peace. Are you anxious, worried? It's not the fruit of the Spirit. A person who can live at peace. Peter was going to be executed. I think it's Acts chapter 12. And he was asleep. If I, was, if I have a bad meeting or a potential for a bad meeting the next day, I'm like upset to my stomach and I'm on the toilet the whole night, right? That's just a bad meeting. No one's going to kill me. Peter was going to die the next day. Probably going to be beheaded just like James was at the beginning of Acts 12. And he's asleep. Names the, the Lord has to wake him up. That's peace, men and women. That's a peace from God. Are you patient with others? You have road rage. We make jokes about that, but that's not a fruit of the spirit. Are you kind to people, even enemies? Are you good? Are you faithful? You think, well, I'm, well, I'm faithful to my spouse. I'm faithful to this. What about to the body of Christ? Are you faithful? We studied last week in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, about the members and how the body needs all of the members. Not members like it's a country club, members like of a body, like members of my body, my fingers, my toes, my hands, my nose, right? We need everyone to be a part of the body because God has worked us together to be that way. You gentle with others? You have self-control? Can people talk to you and you not just blow up and lose your mind? If you can't, then those aren't fruits of the Spirit. You need to be asking God to help you to manifest these fruit, which he will do. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 is a perfect example of those who work to see their, their deeds wrought in God. And this, I'll share this quickly, and I want to just ask one last question about Nicodemus, and we're done. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there it is, they're receiving still the truth, right? They haven't rejected the truth. They're not the first three soils. They're the fourth soil. As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean earn it. It's a word that means that God deposited it in us. And now work it out, right? There's a, that's been, he's done something in us. Now you need to work it out. He's put his salvation in us. We need to work it out by study and knowledge of the word of God. And so work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's why the individual who's genuinely born again has enjoyment because they have a hopeful response to the gospel. They've come to know that so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Why? Because we know, for those of us who are born again, we know that it's God who works and wills in us to accomplish his good pleasure. Not us. So there they are. Here's the biblical responses to the gospel. Rejection, which leads to condemnation and judgment because we were already condemned before the, the light came to show us our condemnation and relieve us of that combination condemnation or true genuine belief that leads to works being carried out in god and that we're not running and hiding like adam and eve so this is the last question so this whole illustration has been set up by a conversation he had right and the conversation was with whom in john 3 
Jesus and Nicodemus. Whatever happened to Nicodemus? Is that it? Nicodemus go to hell when he died? What instructions do we have? Is there any way to know what might have happened? I believe Nicodemus was saved. Let me tell you why. Nicodemus, we're going to come to that as we study John, but Nicodemus is named at least two more times in the gospel according to John. Chapter 7, verse 50, said Nicodemus, who had gone to him, gone to Jesus before, and, was, and, who, was one of the, uh, and who was one of them said to them, so you're talking about Nicodemus, they're having a conversation about Jesus and what to do with Jesus, and, and so Jesus, Nicodemus is talking to the Pharisees, upon which he was one of them, and it says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of them, the Pharisees, said to them, the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So you kind of get a sneak peek. It's like, man, he's sympathetic to Jesus, right? He didn't walk away from this, this, this um, encounter with Jesus upset. He says, listen, you guys are wanting to judge him, and our law says we should give him a hearing. What else do we know about Nicodemus? Well, at the very end, John chapter 19, verse 39, Jesus has already been crucified. He's being taken down from the cross. This is the lowest point, men and women. The 11 apostles have already split town, right? They've already like ran for the hills. They've were all the sheep. The shepherd was, was uh, strict, uh, struck and the, the sheep scattered. Peter's already re- uh, rejected him three times. And this is the lowliest point. Like, it's over, man. What are we doing? What happened? I thought he was the Messiah. And yet two men show up, Joseph of Arimathea and a guy named Nicodemus. John 19, 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. He wanted to make sure there was no mistake. Who was it? Oh, Nicodemus in John 3 who came by night. Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. At the lowliest point, he says, I want to make sure my Savior who died for my sins. As the Son of Man was lifted up in the wilderness, so as the, uh, so the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so would the Son of Man be lifted up. I think Nicodemus got it. God created a new birth in him, opened his eyes to the need of salvation, and he says, I'm going to make sure my Savior gets a proper burial because he's worthy. Why would you do that, Nicodemus, and, and, and risk so much? Well, if you begin to understand, there's nothing I can do to save myself. And it humbles you to see how big, great God is, how big our God is, and how small we are, and how small the people are that we're trying to gain so much through approval. But if God be for us, even a, a God who died on the cross for us, what can man do to us? At the lowliest point, Nicodemus says, He is worth it. Men and women, we have a great gospel to share, and there will be many who will reject it. And that's a, one of the biblical responses to the gospel. But there will be also many who will receive it. And we must be out making disciples, not distracted with the, the things to do. And there's nothing wrong with playing in the band. There's nothing wrong with doing these things. But may we not be so distracted with these things that we're not doing the things that God has commanded us to do. We could sing without any, any, any instruments. We could sing without any singers we could sing without any uh microphones and all those other types of things we don't need to be distracted with the things that we can add to our services and they're fine to have them in our services but there's one thing that we should be doing we should be making disciples it's not the only thing but it's one of the primary things we should be doing is we love god obey him and know him be making disciples and so i pray you'll take this word and you'll begin sharing this marvelous gospel with other people so that they too might Let's pray.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.